This is Nicola Torbett coming to you from the occupied Chochenyo Ohlone territory, now known as Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge, and specifically surge faith. This is the podcast where we put the Christian lectionary scriptures for each week into conversation with the realities of our times, realities of colonization, racism, and white supremacy, of patriarchy and misogyny, of homophobia, xenophobia, and ecocide. And we ask what it means in this environment of dramatic inequity to follow the God who freed the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Or more specifically, what does it mean to follow that God when we are positioned more like Egyptians than like Hebrew slaves? Because we are a project of surge, we are primarily addressing white people, We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. We welcome feedback from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color as we grapple with these questions. I have to admit as we begin this week that I'm tired. Like many of you, I imagine, I spent last week organizing as fast and as hard as I could to prevent the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Also like many of you, my own history of sexual trauma has been activated by the events of the past two weeks. And this week, I gotta say, I'm under the weather. While it's true that when it comes to the oppression that is white supremacy, I am more Egyptian subject than Hebrew slave. I am nevertheless an Egyptian woman, and I'm not sure they had it that easy either. The question is whether I wake up to the ways in which my interests interlock with the interests of people suffering even more, and whether I risk asking on that, acting on that solidarity, or whether I will continue to align myself with imperial plenty and suffer the cost of succumbing to patriarchy. It feels beyond fitting that we have Job in our lectionary for this week. Poor Job, who lost his family and all his wealth, and then on top of it was afflicted with a painful and debilitating physical malady that covered his body in sores. One of the things I love about Job is that he does not hesitate to have all his feelings about what is happening to him. We make much of his faithfulness, and that is right. He refuses to denounce God as a result of his misfortune. But it is also important to notice that he does not suffer in silence. He rails at God. That first line in today's passage says, My complaint is bitter. But apparently the word translated there as bitter might better be translated as rebellious. Job rises up like the women who bird-dogged senators last week, demanding an audience, demanding to be heard by God. Job reminds us that it's okay to be angry, that anger is not mutually exclusive with faithfulness, but can be an important component of it. So all of this is a way to say to you and to myself that it's okay to feel however we're feeling this week. Usually at this point in the podcast, we include some kind of embodied practice so that we can get in touch with how we're feeling. This week, though, I'm a little wary of that. 
As my friend Don Haney explains in her article, Kavanaugh Killed Our Practice, many survivors are finding it more difficult than usual to practice mindfulness, especially when it means being in our bodies right now. I'll link to her article in the transcript, and for now, just know that however you are feeling in this moment, and even if you aren't feeling anything, are feeling numb and checked out, it's all okay and it will come and go as feelings do. I would also urge you to find support for yourself, somewhere where you can unburden, especially if you're holding space for others who are processing trauma. So this is a painful moment, but I think it is also an incredibly important one in terms of movement potential. It's what my mentor, Reverend Lenise Pinkard, calls a crisis too good to waste. This is even, I would argue, an apocalyptic moment. In the true sense of that term, something is being unveiled. You see, part of how the white supremacist patriarchy works is by unspoken agreement that white women, and especially white women of a certain class, stand by their white wealthy men, even when they know that those men are lying or cheating or sleeping around or, say, as was the case on the plantations, beating their slaves bloody. And in exchange, the white women get to benefit from the wealth and privilege-generating systems created and maintained primarily by those men and their actions. And you see, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford broke that agreement. Christine Blasey Ford spoke out against one of the men of her own class, and by doing so, she revealed that as columnist Erin Carmen wrote in the New York Magazine, even the white woman on the pedestal is ultimately doomed to subordination. And if she gets in the way of the plan or breaks the code, well, she's on her own. Ford revealed that the white supremacist patriarchy will not deliver on its promises to women after all. And as a result, a whole bunch more women are up in arms and ready to break rank in order to tell their own stories. The tacit allegiances that hold the systems of injustice together are fraying. And I think Job is the perfect person to help us tug them apart. See, one of the interesting things about Job is that he comes from wealth. He has a very successful and upstanding seeming life. He's one of the people for whom everything seems to be working out in ancient Mesopotamia, or at least he was. But then something terrible happens to him, something that he did nothing to provoke. He's insistent on that point, and his entire life falls apart. His family is all dead, his wealth gone, his health seriously compromised. Much of the book of Job, up until the passage we encounter in this week's lectionary, consists of back-and-forth exchanges between Job, who repeatedly declares his innocence and the unfairness of what has happened to him, and his friends, who insist he must have done something, he must have sinned somehow, 
He must have missed the mark in some way, or God would not have let this happen to him. In my infuriated imagination, I imagined these so-called friends asking Job, Yes, but what were you wearing? And hadn't you also had too much to drink? And you must have done something to lead God on. To think that terrible things happen to people through no fault of their own, for no reason other than, well, Satan, is just too hard, too terrifying, impossible to stomach. And so Job's friends argue and argue and argue with him, and he becomes more and more and more vexed by them. And that brings us to the lectionary for this week, in which Job continues to insist on an audience with God. He wants to take his case directly before the Supreme Judge. So sure is he that he will be found innocent. Only problem is, God is nowhere to be found. If I go forward, he is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. Job can get no justice, because he cannot find the one judge he trusts, to offer a sound decision on his case. God knows the courts of public opinion have failed him, have put him on trial, even though he is the victim in this case. Now there's an interesting translation discrepancy in the last verse of this week's passage. The NRSV reads, If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. It's a cry of despair. But the NIV translates the same verse, Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. In this version, Job remains defiant despite his confusion and, I imagine, his exhaustion. He's down, but he's not out. He's going to come back fighting. And then look what happens in the very next chapter. Suddenly Job expands his vision and his righteous anger beyond his own situation to take on the injustice perpetrated against the poor and defenseless. Here are some verses. There are those who move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox and pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing? Suddenly Job is identifying his own senseless suffering with the unearned misery of all people who are poor, widowed, orphaned, exploited, brutalized, and killed. His outrage is not just that he can find no justice in his case against God, but that there is no justice for any of the oppressed or against any of those who are responsible for their suffering. Now, this is a really important theological intervention because it challenges the prevailing Deuteronomist theology. 
the theology that insisted that Yahweh would reward obedience and punish disobedience. In practice, this theology is more frequently expressed the way Job's friends express it. If you're suffering, you must have done something to deserve it. Now, as many biblical scholars and theologians have been quick to point out, this Deuteronomistic theology does make a certain amount of sense in an agrarian and egalitarian society such as the one Israel aspired to be in its earliest days. If you work hard to farm your land, it will often yield more produce. If you treat your neighbors well, they are more likely to help you out in a pinch. You can see how that might have worked. However, as soon as power hierarchies are instituted, and then social structures to support those power hierarchies, this causal chain is broken. As Austin Klein puts it, the aristocracy and monarchical court don't work the land and don't produce food, clothing, tools, or anything else like that, but they do extract value from the work of others. Some, therefore, end up eating well no matter what they do, while those who do work hard may not eat well because of how much they must turn over in taxes. The aristocracy benefits greatly from the reversed version of the above principle. If you are prosperous, it's a sign that Yahweh has blessed you because you've been obedient. Because of their ability to extract wealth from others through taxes, the aristocracy is always doing relatively well. It is in their interest that the principle stops being what you sow you will reap, and instead becomes, whatever you're reaping, you must have sown. This is the theology of Job's friends, right? And this theology is very much at work in our own culture, and it's not just conservatives who believe it. When otherwise liberal people fixate on, say, Mike Brown selling cigarettes, or Alan Bluford having a police record, they are reaching for that same theology, that if you have been punished, you must have deserved it. But Job's story gives the lie to this theology, even if his privileged friends cannot accept it. It's as if his own experience suddenly reveals to him all the others around him who are suffering unjustly, through no fault of their own. And a new solidarity is born. The man of privilege is suddenly aligned with the destitute of his society in a way that his friends, still caught up in their own privilege, cannot be. So I find myself wondering if the Kavanaugh confirmation can have a similar effect. Might it lead white women, even white women who have otherwise enjoyed considerable privilege, to understand the ways in which the justice system has never worked for black people, for immigrants, for indigenous people and poor people? Or can it lead us into solidarity with women of color who, for example, face sexual assault as hotel employees, cleaning guest rooms, or janitors working the night shift in nearly but not entirely deserted office buildings, or women who are, for whatever reason, taken into police custody and at risk of sexual assault. Last Saturday, I helped to organize an emergency response to the confirmation where we lifted up local efforts to protect vulnerable women and young people. Measure Z in Oakland, which would require hotels to provide their house cleaners with panic buttons, and Assembly Bill 2079 to protect cleaning people working the night shift, and Prop 10 to remove restrictions on rent control 
because nothing is more dangerous for women and children than being forced to live on the street. I was really distressed to hear that when we mentioned Prop 10, there was hissing in the crowd, ostensibly because there were property owners in the crowd who oppose limits on the rent they can charge. I just wonder what will it take for us to realize that we cannot get ahead at the price of other sufferings while being outraged at Brett Kavanaugh getting ahead at the price of our suffering. We truly are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. As Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. So it's not coincidental that Job must pass through this experience of solidarity with all suffering people before he can meet God. It's just a few chapters later that his longed-for meeting takes place. Now what happens in that meeting is complex and not easy to unpack. The best study of this exchange between Job and God is undoubtedly Gustavo Gutierrez's volume on Job, God Talk, and the Suffering of the Innocent. I'm not going to try to reproduce his brilliant study here, but I'll summarize it by saying that Job can't find God in the courtroom of his imagination because God is not a judge. Not first and foremost, and quite possibly not at all. The whole idea of retributive justice with all its ideas about reward and punishment with its courtrooms and its incarceration appears to be a human invention that has nothing to do with how God views God's creation. God does not reward and punish. God simply loves and creates and loves what is created freely, without strings. Of course, God probably hopes that we creatures will respond to this unmerited grace by loving each other that way, loving all creation that way, ourselves, but God is not going to reward us for doing that or punish us for not doing it because to do that would compromise our freedom and God's. God will just go on loving and creating. Gutierrez calls the resulting encounter between God and Job standing in for all human beings, the mysterious meeting of two freedoms. The mysterious meeting of two freedoms. I love that. What would happen if we could really let go of all our hope of reward and our fear of punishment? James Baldwin wrote about how this inane system of reward and punishment serves to hold injustice in place. What if we could let that go? What kinds of radical solidarity would be possible if we stopped trading our love of each other for privilege? What risks might we take on another, one another's behalf? Might we, like Christine Blasey Ford, become class traders, race traders? Might men trade in their patriarchy cards for genuine intimate solidarity with women? I pray that we may someday know Amen.
it mean for you to take your outrage at the Kavanaugh confirmation and let it lead you into solidarity with women and young people who are the most vulnerable? I want to begin our call to action by sharing part of a Facebook post written by Tammy Lee. Tammy Lee is an activist based in New York City, and she writes, White women, yes, all of you, especially the ones who are out here fighting the patriarchy. You have hurt me today, and I want to talk to you now so I can stand next to you in a few hours. White supremacy and patriarchy are interlocking systems of oppression. On the one hand, because those systems are interlocking, it binds your liberation to people of color. On the other hand, because those systems are interlocking, it amplifies our oppression compared to white women. So when Christine Ford is not believed, it is not the same as when Anita Hill is not believed. When Anita Hill testified, she had to not only fear the consequences of patriarchy and racism, she also had to face an additional jeopardy that results from falling simultaneously in the social constructs of blackness and womanhood. Yes, there is a form of oppression that is unique to black women that neither black men nor white women experience. If you cannot fathom this, you should read up on what separated our feminist movements throughout the first couple of waves. Black women scholars came up with a term for it, intersectionality. You have obviously heard of it, but you might be using it incorrectly. It is not racist for us to tell you this. It is racist for you to ignore it. It is not divisive for us to tell you this. It is oppressive for you to tell us to stay silent about it. It is never a bad time for us to bring it up. Timing suggests choice. And the effects of white supremacy and patriarchy are omnipresent. We can never opt out. Aye, that's the privilege you can't seem to see. White supremacy, the overlapping system we are fighting, bestows upon you a permanent right to opt in. To opt at all, really. And hear me loud and clear. We want you to opt in. If you aspire to be an intersexual, intersectional feminist, you have to learn that when women of color express their pain, it doesn't negate yours. When we remind you that the fight against patriarchy didn't start with the election of Donald Trump, we are not attacking you. We are trying to give you hope. When we ask you to do more, we are not saying you haven't done a lot. We are extending you the opportunity to join a bigger movement, a more inclusive circle that taps into the experiences and resilience of black women, trans women, disabled women, indigenous women. We can help you understand the pain and social distortion that has you spinning with anger and despair right now. Instead, we have been silenced throughout history and are being silenced now. Sometimes, yes, at your hands when you find our pain inconvenient, distracting, or for some reason incendiary and causal. You have the power, white sisters, to amplify our pain or to amplify our voices. At the moment, some of you are doing both. And it is your failure to see it, not our need to say it, that is causing the fragmentation. Match your words with your actions. Contextualize your actions in history. Protest wide instead of just hard. 
if you can't see the opportunity in that critique, you are not what you think you are, and your feminism is caged. You should aspire to bind your liberation in ours, because if we free the most marginalized of our sisters, we free ourselves. That's from Tammy Lee. I urge you to spend some time with those words. Allow any defensiveness to arise and fade away. Talk about her post with friends. And then commit yourselves to taking one action to protest wide instead of just hard. One opportunity for solidarity that is live right now is the Marriott Workers Strike. In eight cities nationwide, Marriott bellhops, bartenders, and house cleaners are striking for better wages and also more protection from sexual assault. Read up on this strike. I'll post some links in the transcript. And then consider how you might be in solidarity. Can you spread the word? Urge your friends and social media followers to boycott Marriott hotels. If workers are striking in your area, can you take some food to them? Maybe walk the picket line with them for an hour or two. Even here in the relatively allergic Bay Area, striking workers are almost always so moved to see someone show up from the church. It happens way too infrequently. If you have a little more time and gumption, you might research the policies of hotels in your city or town. Are there sexual assault protections in place? If not, is that something workers would like to see happen? Can you work with them to organize for those protections? This is just one way that you can broaden your solidarity from Christine Blasey Ford and other white middle-class sexual assault survivors to include women of color and poor women. Brainstorm with your community to find other ways of protesting wide. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know what you think and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And be sure to tune in next week for another Liberation Word. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct action and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Children.